The other kids make fun of him because of how young he looks. Nobody includes him. They call him the narc behind his back. They do? One day, you'll be cool. So you're the kid who's been sending me those articles from the school newspaper. What do you like, the star of your school? They hate me. This is Rolling Stone magazine. We got a couple copies of your stories. I think you should be writing for us. We can only pay, let me see, $700. All right, a grand. I'd like to interview you or somebody from your band. Oh, the enemy, a rock writer. How old are you? 17. Me too. Actually, I'm 16. Me too. Isn't it funny? The truth just sounds different. I'm 15. If you're going to be a true journalist, you cannot make friends with the rock star. They're gonna fly you places for free. You're gonna meet girls. Oh God, it's gonna get ugly. I am telling secrets to the one guy you don't tell secrets to. I know what's going on. Your mom called! I have family members with severe anxiety problems. Hey, you wanna go to a party with some good people looking to have a good time? Don't take drugs! Don't take drugs! Your mom kind of freaked me out. It's Bowie! Rock stars have kidnapped my son. I am a golden god! Because they make you feel cool. And hey, I met you. You are not cool. In terms of your writing, the filmmaking, the finished product, is it nearest and dearest? Yeah, it is. And it's become nearest and dearest to the people that talk to me about my stuff, too. I always hear about Almost Famous. I probably don't go a week without someone telling me what Penny Lane is to them, what Almost Famous is to them. And someone asked me, like, it's weird to be 40. Like, I'm like, oh, my God, Almost Famous, that happening in my life was like, all right, well, your 20s are going to be insane, thanks to Almost Famous. And so for two decades, my life has sort of exploded. And then I look back, and as I'm sitting in my therapist's office, I'm going, I just, I'm feeling like... You know, I'm 40 and like, I just want to, I just, and my therapist goes, you want to get back on the bus with Stillwater? <laughs> I was like, yes, I want to go back on the bus. I want to go back on the bus. You're right. That's exactly what I want. They sent the script, which was untitled at that time. And a couple weeks after that, I came out here to LA and we started rehearsals. All the guys were doing uh, band camp, so they were learning to be rock stars with Peter Frampton and Nancy. I read with Kate, and I know Cameron got that on video. Kate Hudson coming into the room the first time. What was that like for you? 
for me, I mean, I was a 16 year old kid and she's like a movie star and like from movie star royalty, you know, kind of heritage, that kind of thing. And, uh, I also was very aware that my character was going to be like falling for her character. So I was pretty nervous at that point. I was really into like hanging out with my friends and skateboarding and mountain biking and that kind of stuff. Like I didn't really talk to a lot of girls and pretty girls. We were talking a lot about the era, and he asked me, like, he was about to do the scene where he takes the acid at the party, <laughs> and he was talking to me before he did the scene, and he said, did you ever take any acid? And I was like, well, I got to admit, yeah, I did in the late 60s. And uh, he goes, what's it like? You know, what does it feel like? I said, it's like there's little lightning bolts coming out the ends of your fingers and the ends of your hair. So he used that in the scene in a really perfect way, I thought. He had his fingers like going out, you know, like he was feeling for the energy and feeling for the electricity in the air. And it came off beautifully. I mean, there's, let's see, 3,650 days in 10 years, so that times two is about, I don't know, 7,200. That many days of looking for that since the script, yes. 7,200 days of looking for that same kind of ambiguity. And uh, and also playing a rock star when you're in your 30s and you got long hair and you got a sweet stash. I mean, it's not going to get better than that. So I'm leaving the premiere in Toronto that I was not invited to. And I go down, of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman's there. He's in a stretch limousine. <laughs> Yeah, which is hilarious. I'm taking a cab there, you know. So I see him, and I run, and I dive in the limousine, and I hug him, and I start, like, wrestling with him and, like, humping him, you know, like, just messing around, like, yeah. wrestling, you know. And I go, like, I love you, man. What's up? You know, and he goes, he goes, Jimmy, 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 Jimmy. Well, I go, why? He goes, this is my mom over there. She was at the other side of the stretch. <laughs> The other side of the stretch limousine. <laughs> I go, oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry. We uh, we had a fun relationship on the movie. Like we, I was like, what am I doing? He was with his mother, and I go, hi, nice to meet you. I just jumped out of the limousine. I'm like, taxi. Oh or, my! God. I don't know how you say it in Toronto. Like, taxi. cab. blue cab de blue. And then I got in my cab and went to my hotel. I didn't study acting. I didn't do. I was a skateboarder, and I liked movies. And I loved working with Kevin Smith and all the dialogue and being funny. And it was a fun thing for me to do because I was just some smart ass punk skateboarder. And now here I am, the lead singer of a band in a Cameron Crowe film. These are the two things that have reverberated over the last 20 years. One is that when I'm in public, one of the things I do often encounter is some now even middle-aged men yelling, don't take drugs at me. And I'm just exactly good advice, right? And the other thing was when I watched Almost Famous for the first time with my son, who is now 25, he was, I think, 12, and two things happened. One, it was the perfect thing to watch when he was entering his preteen years and pubescence. It brought up all the things that you want to talk to them about, but don't know how. And so it kind of was the whole list, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it, you could talk about it from the character's point of view. So come on, be honest. When you were 15 years old, 
You were confided in by Led Zeppelin, taken to Japan by Leonard Skinner, pulled into the studio by David Bowie when he was recording TVC15, wrote about a bunch of it for Rolling Stone magazine, and, oh yeah, lost your virginity at the hands of some music-loving band-aids, right? Not right? Chances are, none of that stuff happened to you any more than it happened to me. And yet, it kind of happened to all of us, vicariously, thanks to Almost Famous, Cameron Crowe's brilliant, evocative film about the adventures of an eager young journalist named William Miller. In the movie, released in the year 2000, William was a fictional character, it's true, partly because writer and director Crowe patterned Miller on himself and on his real-life experiences, touring with Led Zeppelin, the Allman Brothers, the Eagles, Leonard Skinner, and more. So while the film was certainly no documentary, the ring of truth was, shall we say, resounding. I'm Jim Miller, no relation to William, except, well, in spirit. And this is Origins, Chapter 6, Almost Famous Turns 20. To help celebrate the 20th anniversary of the film's release, we've managed to put the band back together. The gang's all here. Cameron Crowe, Billy Crudup, Kate Hudson, Zoe Deschanel, Jimmy Fallon, Francis McDormand, Peter Frampton, Patrick Fugit, Nancy Wilson from Heart, the real Penny Lane, and even Cameron's dear friend for decades, noted photographer Neil Preston, who shot stills on the set. Although not a box office smash in its initial release, the film did earn auspicious attention. Crow won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, and both Kate Hudson and Frances McDormand received Oscar nominations for Best Supporting Actress. Roger Ebert, then the country's most trusted critic, hailed Almost Famous as, quote, the best movie of the year. The film was anything but the work of a beginner. Crow had most recently written and directed the big fat crowd pleaser Jerry Maguire, starring Tom Cruise, Renee Zellweger, and Cuba Gooding Jr. That movie was punctuated with quotable lines like, show me the money, you complete me, and of course, you had me at hello. Considering the way things work in Hollywood, Cameron Crowe could have parlayed Jerry Maguire's success into a pricey blockbuster, a franchise property perhaps, with a huge budget and stars from the top of the pack. But he took another road instead, choosing to use the capital he accrued from Jerry Maguire to turn almost famous from idea into reality. So why a whole chapter of origins on Almost Famous? Fair question. Almost Famous may be modest in scope, yet it is wickedly ambitious. I consider it one of the greatest coming-of-age pictures ever made, but it's even more than that. Among its many virtues, three primary qualities come to mind. First, the verisimilitude is extraordinary. The movie casts a beguiling spell that vividly and cleverly transports us to another place in time, the world of rock in the early 70s. It achieves a level of precision that could only be attained by someone who lived through this experience and took notes. Cameron was there. He paid attention to everything. And luckily for us, he wrote it all down. Second, the movie approaches the subject of music in an earnestly spiritual way, to a degree rare in motion pictures. Late in the film, Farusa Balk, who plays the character Sapphire, while talking about what she sees as the disappointing new crop of pop buffs, utters this gem. They don't even know what it is to be a fan, she says, to blindly love some silly piece of music or some band so much that it hurts. Yep, 
That's deep and sweet. The movie never gets pretentious because it never forgets the fun at the heart of its subject. What no less an authority than Leonard Bernstein called the joy of music. Joy fills Almost Famous. And finally, and particularly relevant for our times, Almost Famous is in large part a celebration of good, solid, old-school journalism. What Cameron was able to do back in the 70s in real life, spending weeks on the road with a band or artist and studying their ins and outs, their ways and means, would be all but impossible now. The economics of modern media alone make it unlikely, if not unthinkable. Bottom line, and not to get too corny, what Cameron Crowe accomplished with Almost Famous took work, yes, and time, and of course money. But most of all, it took love. The movie was the culmination of Crowe's 10-year journey to bring it to the screen, and we will reveal many of the roadblocks, bottlenecks, and little-known facts from along the way. As you will hear throughout our five episodes, there's plenty that's new, and plenty to learn, including alternative routes the film could have taken, and how they could have resulted in a considerably different movie from the classic it turned out to be. It starts in episode one with casting. Just picture it, Almost Famous, starring Meryl Streep, Brad Pitt, and Natalie Portman. Well, almost. So let's get to it. Origins Chapter 6. Happy 20th Anniversary to Almost Famous. This is Episode 1. Almost Famous premiered at the Toronto Film Festival on September 8, 2000, and was released wide in North America on September 22nd. The movie had been given a green light by its studio, DreamWorks, with no casting contingencies. That meant there wasn't a big star attached, whose presence helped secure the financing. Cameron Crowe's script was the star. I knew the story could work, is the thing. Like, I just, I knew, you know, a kid talking his way onto the road with rock bands when he wasn't accepted in his own kind of school was a story that I knew could be told. I just had to tell it correctly. But I just knew the casting had to be right or we would fall off that steep cliff. Casting, casting, casting. It's sort of like the mantra, location, 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 in real estate. But this was unreal real estate, the movie business. As Cameron Crowe knew, film graveyards are liberally littered with great scripts torpedoed by careless casting. Conversely, Oscars have gone more than once to movies that overcame mediocre scripts with star-spangled personnel. In the early stages of Oma's Famous, there was talk about casting her ladyship Meryl Streep as Elaine Miller, the mother of the young rock journalist, Brad Pitt as Russell Hammond, lead guitarist in the band Stillwater, and Natalie Portman in the role of Band-Aid, Penny Lane. Brad Pitt was on my mind because I'd had a really good meeting with him around the time of Say Anything. And he was just starting out, and he just really had something. We spent a lot of time working on stuff for Say Anything. He never forgot it called me after Jerry Maguire and said, what do you got? What do you got coming? And I was like, well, I'll call you with the next thing. So I called him with this to play Russell Hammond, and we spent about four months working on it. He read with Natalie Portman. For the critical job of the film's casting director, Cameron turned to Gail Levin, the savvy pro who'd come through for him big time on Jerry Maguire. Can you talk about the Brad Pitt of it all? Well, he was the first choice just the first choice. We loved that idea. And he was Brad Pitt. I mean, he was funny and handsome and talented and just 
I mean, that kind of charisma and screen presence would have been really, really great for that part. So we went out to him, and he was kind of attached to it for a while. I would go to his house. We would read through it. He's a big fan of music, big fan of rock, big fan of a lot of the Seattle bands that I had been, you know, we'd made singles in the movie before. So we kind of geeked out about music and everything, and he was slowly kind of putting on the Russell Hammond persona. Really funny. Really, really, really funny. There was one point where he did the scene where he takes a phone call from Elaine, the mother character, and says, you know, hangs up and tells the kid, your mom kind of freaked me out. So Brad Pitt did that one day, and I, like couldn't breathe I was laughing so hard I was just and he's just looking at me and I'm just literally rolling on the floor like dying he's like what what did I say that was so funny and I'm like that that is what you're doing that's so funny you're hilarious he goes well I don't know that I'm being hilarious I'm like good this is the guy and um we worked for about another month after that and he read with Patrick Patrick would be Patrick Fugit, who, after a long search, was plucked from a horde of hundreds of young hopefuls to be cast as 15-year-old William Miller. Taking a chance on a relative unknown for the lead was a huge gamble for Crow to take. Let's face it, if the character of William isn't believable, the movie doesn't work. Patrick's distinctive aura of innocence and the lovable sense of uncool he created formed the foundation for William. Where do you get sweet? I am dark and mysterious and pissed off, and I could be very dangerous to all of you. I am not sweet, and you should know that about me. I am the enemy. The one thing we couldn't get is William Miller. Really hard, and hard to cast yourself, which I'd never done, you know, and it's just so kind of, you're so self-conscious and... Guys have seen pictures of you and like come in with hair kind of like yours and you're just, it's embarrassing, Jim. It's just completely embarrassing. Patrick was tough to find. And Patrick Fugit was not the guy that I had in my mind when I wrote it. But Patrick had the soul, which was everything, you know. He had the feeling of a guy that hadn't really grown up in L.A. or New York, which I always felt San Diego was a place apart for me, felt way different from L.A., way different from New York. And Patrick felt way different in the right way. He also came from this really solid, wonderful family, not jaded. And so much of the character and what the character is going through, Patrick is going through at the same time. He also had the look of somebody who hadn't spent a lot of time fitting in. He didn't look like a caricature of an outcast, but he looked like he'd been not in all of the most popular groups around school. You know, he felt to me like somebody that kind of was a self-starter and went home and hung out in his room a lot. I walked into his main office at the time and he had these huge posters of Truffaut films on the wall and just a wall of uh, CD collections and vinyl collections and everything. It was a very like homey office. And he at the time was just wearing cargo shorts, sneakers, a t-shirt and had like shoulder length hair. And he was like, Hey man, how's it going? And I was like, Hey, like looking around for the director guy, Cameron Crowe, you know, I was like, Hey, yeah. And he's like, I'm Cameron. I was like, Oh, okay, cool. (laughs) And we sat down and I'm like, 
I'm ready to like get going. And he spent, I think, two and a half or three hours with me, which is insane. It's insane. Like that hasn't happened since for a director to just hang out with the actors that are auditioning and take the time to really like let me unwind, you know, because I was like ready to go, ready to be like performing guy, that kind of thing, like ready to get into character. And I'd done a lot of live theater at that point. So I was like ready to be on, but that's not really what he was looking for, I think. So he took the time to just let me sort of settle into the space. He wanted to date you before he married you. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. It was a brilliant sort of like couple steps back before we take any steps forward kind of thing. And he asked me about Utah. He asked me about this whole experience. Basically, he wanted to see how parallel to William I was at that point. He's like, so what's the experience been like coming out on the plane? And then he started asking me about music. So I was like, yeah, I don't know. I have like a Chumbawamba CD. Like, that's it. And he's like, do you listen to uh, Led Zeppelin? And I was like, I don't really, I'm not familiar with him. I'm not familiar with his stuff. So Sarah Polly was Penny Lane. Kate Hudson, who had come in and auditioned and just like loved her, was the sister. Anything but a stranger to show business, Kate Hudson grew up in L.A. as the daughter of Oscar-winning actor Goldie Hawn and Bill Hudson, member of the fun-loving Hudson Brothers troupe. Actor Kurt Russell, Goldie's longtime boyfriend, also emerged as a guiding force in Kate's life. After graduating from a Santa Monica prep school, Kate said no to an offer to continue her studies at NYU, opting to exit academia and try for an acting career. In Almost Famous, Kate plays lead Band-Aid Penny Lane. The first time I met Kate was at a theater in Westwood. I think Martin Short, her mother's friend, was in this play. And I was one row in front of Kate. And I met her, and immediately she lit up that room. Do you recall the first time Almost Famous came across your transom? <laughs> when did you first hear about it? Well, like any young aspiring actress in Hollywood, you hopefully have an agent and you hopefully get to know a sort of network of casting agents that are in the best moments rooting for you. And Almost Famous came about through my agent and the agency circuit clearly there was a part available to play a small part in a Cameron Crowe film with Brad Pitt and Sarah Pauly. And I was like, oh my God, I'll drop everything and I'll do it. I don't care what it is. I, when do I show up? How do I audition? And You're 19, right? I was 19. And at the time, it's funny because I was really lucky enough to have a lot of, like I said, casting directors rooting for me. And I was getting quite a few parts. It was the era of movies where it was a lot of those high school movies, you know, American Pie, Scream, 10 Things I Hate About You. It was a very popular time for girls that were teenagers, sort of 17 to 20. And I just was turning a lot of parts down because I was really kind of, I don't know, at that time in my life, I was like, no, I want to do things that have more that aren't like what everybody else is doing. And so I went and I auditioned for Cameron. It was the Zoe Deschanel part, the sister. I 
ended up getting the part, I was beyond excited because I was such a huge Cameron Crowe fan. I think you had seen Jerry Maguire. Oh, singles, Jerry Maguire, saying anything. I mean, everything that Cameron had done to me was like, I think as I make more films as I get older, as I sort of transition into wanting to direct, I would say Cameron Crowe would probably have been and is one of the most inspiring directors for me in terms of tone, sensibility. And that really starts in the audition process, right? He talked about when he sat with you, it's not just like you come in and read a couple sides. No, no, it's a workshop. Like they say in Broadway, you kind of come in and and he really works with you. And honestly, he inspires you and he wants to see, I think I would say that auditioning process was as, it's what you think that making movies is always going to be. You know, you think you're going to get in a room with a director and you're going to work things out and you're going to try different stuff and you're going to be inspired to go to places that are out of your comfort zone. And it's just not always like that. But then when you go in and audition for Cameron Crowe, I don't think there's anybody who ever has auditioned for Cameron Crowe who's not like, I want to be in his movie. Please choose me, (laughs) you know? I had met Kate on a general interview. And Kate is so full of life. And she's so wild, but yet sweet at the same time. And behind it all, she had so much soul and so much sweetness. And she was, for a young girl, she was just so sexy and cool. And I just loved her. So when I brought her in for the sister, no problem. I mean, You meet Kate Hudson and you're just like, done. She's great. When you got the part for Anita, there was a kind of a long process to Cameron's casting process, which became even longer. Long and daunting. (laughs) You're sort of like, Jesus, Cameron. Like After a while, you're like, okay, now this is crazy. But at the same time, you weren't going to take something that would eliminate the possibility of you being in Gnome Famous. Yeah, and it, I think it pissed a lot of people off because I actually got a couple big parts and um, I chose to stay with Cameron and be Anita. And I, I remember when he called me, I was shooting in Ireland and it was that time in your career where you're like, oh my God, this is so exciting because it felt like a lot of interesting things were coming my way and that I was getting opportunities to audition with great directors and interesting movies, but nothing like when I sat in Cameron's office and read Almost Famous. I mean, even at 19, I guess maybe because I read scripts my whole life, since I could read, I was reading scripts. And I guess you just know when you read something like that, you go, okay, well, this doesn't come around very often and I want to be in this movie. There was a point where Kate was offered the lead in a romantic comedy for Harvey Weinstein. And she said, no, I'm going to hang out to be in this movie because I've said I was going to be in Almost Famous and I'm going to be in this, it was called Untitled then. But I'm going to be in Cameron's movie and I'm going to play the sister and I know it's a smaller part, but I love it. Meanwhile, back in Utah. I was at home in Salt Lake City and I had actually come out a couple more times to LA to do screen tests. So I did that call back and then I came back out to do some scenes with Brad Pitt, who at the time was playing Russell. What was that like? That was amazing. I was a little more nervous for that one because I knew, you know, obviously like who Brad Pitt was at the time and he was this big movie star. And I came into the room and it was back in Cameron's office again and 
and it was the same kind of deal. We just hung out and talked for a while. Cameron actually left the room, I think on purpose and just let me and Brad sort of exist in the room together. So yeah, you're 16. You're just hanging out with Brad Just hanging out with Brad Pitt. Yeah. And he was great because he just asked a few quick questions and figured out that I was like playing video games, you know, and that I like to snowboard being from Utah. And he's like, have you played this game? Cool borders. And I, of course, I was like, my friends and I were playing the shit out of Cool Borders. So I was like, yeah, I play Cool Borders. And he's like, dude, he was like talking about the hardest trick in the game and like how he landed it once. And I was like, I've landed it three times. And so we had this whole like exchange about Cool Borders and got all excited about it. And then when Cameron came back, we did the scenes and uh, and it went great. I was there and they were amazing. I thought they were a great match in terms of their essential personalities. Patrick was sort of naive and cute and a little nervous. I mean, here he was, this is his first big job as a young actor, but curious and kind of deep. And Brad was funny and confident and charismatic and all those things. And just together, there was a a great chemistry that had a very specific result that was really wonderful. I love Brad Pitt. He loved music, you know, so like everything about paying tribute to the music we love, already in place, done, walk away, perfect, loving music, he's got it. And then, just like that, goodbye Mr. Pitt, exit stage left. Brad Pitt suddenly decided he didn't want to play the part and dropped out of the film. What's it like for you, you got this big star and then he disappears i wept (laughs) i uh, tortured all my friends with the what the fuck are we gonna do but i think in the back of my brain i knew that he had never fully fallen in love with the character he'd fallen in love with the idea of the character but i don't know that and maybe there just wasn't enough on the page but we worked for about four months on it And I felt that like every session that we had, we were pushing it a little bit further towards the place where he knew how to play that part. It was the manner of how you walk into the part of an actual musician. And I think at that point in his career, you know, he probably hadn't done all the work towards understanding what he personally loved about art yet. But he was getting there, you know, he was getting there trying to be a guy showing us how deeply he felt the art that he loved. It was just over the deal. And unfortunately, you know, at that time in Hollywood, people were making boatloads of money. And a lot of their fees were based on quotes, prior quotes. And so people were attached to a certain number. And if you didn't make that number, sometimes you would not get that actor. He told me that wasn't the case. Some of my friends told me, don't be a fool. Of course it was the case. I think it was probably half and half. I'm not sure should have been Brad. I mean, if he'd taken the steps that we both knew he needed to take for him to love it and do it, probably would have been great. He was great with Patrick. But I think he was also uncomfortable with the age difference between Russell and Penny Lane. And would it seem like an older guy is with a younger girl? And Penny had to be a certain age. But then, I think six or seven months later, he just walked in the door one day at our office, said he was driving by, 
just wanted to come in and say that we'd always been on his mind and uh, good luck. And he left. <laughs> and I loved him for it. He had to kind of figure out which direction to go and which was great because then we ended up with Billy Crudup, which is perfect. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Mom, it's Russell Hammond. I play guitar in Stillwater. Hey, how does it feel to be the mother of the greatest rock journalist we've met? Ow! <laughs> Hello? Hello? What was it about the part itself that attracted you to it? Well, he was elusive. Actually, on the page, one of the things Cameron told me is he hadn't finished who the character was. Everything that he aspired to write about with the guy wasn't quite completed in the draft that he had. And I think the reason was because he wanted to write somebody elusive. So how do you give language to somebody who is constantly avoiding a dialogue, particularly when it's with a journalist? How do you find the moments that reveal his deep self and moreover for Cameron, reveal what it's like to be a young person in a position of power like that? who has the kind of magical agency that they do. So for Russell, I think he kind of grew up feeling like he was really good at guitar and he really liked playing guitar. And then all of a sudden, there's 30,000 people in front of him. How do you make that transition? And one of the ways you do it is clam up. So you don't tell anybody anything so that they allow to believe that you have this kind of mystical quality. And I think you see that in a lot of uh, musicians. And for myself, actors, I didn't say shit for the first 20 years I was working. Just because you, you don't want to undermine anybody's ability to imagine that there is some sort of magical process going on. It's much more fun if it's elusive, they believe you're the character, they think that you're just kind of channeling somebody. That, that works better for the form. How did you come to Billy? Was Billy already at the top of the plan B list? Yes. Yes. I think there were maybe five actors on that list. Do you remember any of the others? I know Russell Crowe was on it. Billy Crudup was born in Manhasset, New York in 1968, but spent most of his childhood years in Texas and Florida. He earned his bachelor's degree from UNC at Chapel Hill, a Master of Fine Arts from NYU's Tisch School, and appeared on stage and screen prior to Almost Famous. He played Russell Hammond, lead guitarist of the film's fictional band, Stillwater. Hammond's character was inspired by Glenn Fry of the Eagles, a group that young Cameron Crowe had spent countless hours following around and writing about. When he walked onto the set, he was laconic, charismatic. He looked like James Taylor and Dickie Betts from the Allman Brothers, and I was the happiest guy around. Also, the chemistry is really great between Jason and Billy. And I don't know that it would have been the same if Brad Pitt was playing Russell. There was something shoulder to shoulder about yeah, Billy and Jason. Yeah, it's a level playing field. But no, I didn't know how much he was suffering. I also didn't know how much he was fighting 
the desire to also have his own kind of uncompromising non-Hollywood career while being in one of the first movies from Hollywood's biggest sensation, DreamWorks Pictures, led by Spielberg. This is not Billy hiding out on a stage in, in New York off-Broadway. He is stepping into a Brad Pitt part, basically. Mm. And I remember, this is really good for Billy Crudup, and you have a lot of work to do getting him to understand how to play guitar and piano and everything. But, man, he threw himself into it. I mean, the six weeks theory of how he got ready to play that part makes him right for the part in my head. The only problem was that she said he's a guitar player. And I was like, you know, I was young enough to go, oh, yeah, sure, uh, absolutely, I can, I, I'll figure that out, uh, whatever it takes to get in there. Uh, and the audition tape that Cameron has of me is three hours of me playing like the E string, smoke on the water, dump, 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 in between lines, because I could only do one thing or the other. I could play dun, 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 and then speak, or... <laughs> <laughs> and um, Cameron has a natural curiosity about the dramatic process. So he takes his time with the questions that he considers, the way in which he asks questions, the patience to listen to the answers, the insistence to explore all the different areas so an audition with him is like a workshop you know you i left feeling i don't really know if i got the part or didn't get the part i'm not sure i even care i just had a really cool experience what you got under your coat it's unfair that we can't listen to our music it's because it is about drugs and promiscuous sex simon and garfunkel is poetry yes it's poetry it is the poetry of drugs and promiscuous sex honey they're on pot francis mcdormand's widely celebrated and decorated acting career began with the films blood simple in 1984 and raising arizona in 1987 both made by the quixotic cohen brothers francis was born years earlier in gibson city illinois and adopted there by Noreen and Vernon McDormand, a nurse and a pastor. She received her undergraduate education at Bethany College in West Virginia, then moved way uptown to earn a Master of Fine Arts from the Yale School of Drama. The Coens were good to McDormand, and she to them, scoring her first Academy Award as a pregnant police officer in the Coens' fabulous Fargo. Her second Best Actress Oscar was for her brilliant portrayal of a grieving mother in Three Billboards in Ebbing, Missouri. McDormand has also had successful stints on Broadway, earning a Best Actress Tony Award for her work in Good People in 2011. She's also been a force on television, winning an Emmy for playing Olive Kittredge in the 2014 HBO miniseries. In Almost Famous, Frances played William's mother, Elaine Miller. One thing Cameron did say, he said, look, you don't have to find anybody that looks like me. You know, it's not about someone who looks like me or my mother. So that opened things up. And I think Fargo had come out and it was like, oh my God, she, this woman is so brilliant. She can do anything. And I was in love with her. So we talked about her early on. And even though we probably had a list of 20 other women, she was just to me, look no further. It was just a great break that Francis and Billy had that chemistry. They came into it just singing together. That was huge. I had done a play with Billy Crudup 
maybe four months before we did the film. And it was a play written by an old friend of mine from drama school. And it was an adaptation of Oedipus, the Oedipus story, four hours long. And I played his mother and he played Oedipus. So when it got to the phone call where I give him the lecture about being a good role model for my son, and after one take where I say, there's still hope for you, Russell, Cameron said, oh my God, that was a little sexually charged. I'm not sure that's exactly what I was looking for. And I said, well, Billy and I were like laughing. You said, well, you have to understand, we just played Oedipus and Yocasta. (laughs) Francis took the wheel really early on, you know, because I told my mom, you know, it was a little rough shooting in your hometown where she lived, you know, and my mom is going to want to be on the set all the time. And that's weird, you know. That's weird to be directing your life with your mom on set, and now you're directing a character based on your mom. That's just like too much. It's that's more infantilization than Williams going terrible. through. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's like you know. And then you're like doing take after take, and just like you know, one of the crew guys came up to me at one point and said, like, don't you think therapy would have been a little cheaper? <laughs> but I told my mom like, don't hassle Frances McDormand. She's like won an Oscar, you know what I mean? She's fine. She knows how to do this. Did you know? she try that at any point? Jim, I turned around 10 minutes later and she's like buttonholing Francis, like just right in front of me. And I was freaking out. And then they talked for a little bit and then they separated. And I talked to Francis first about what the conversation was. And she said, you know, I just said to her, Alice, it's not going to be you and it's not going to be me. It's going to be someone else. And she said, your mom heard it. (laughs) So smart. So smart and true. Talk about the role of Penny Lane because it didn't start with Kate Hudson. Mm -mm, No. Well, when Cameron brought Almost Famous to me, he already had cast Sarah Pauly in that role. And Sarah Pauly looked a lot like the real Penny Lane. Big fan of Sarah Pauly's Sweet Hereafter, loved her performance, just loved her quality. Again, big music fan. She had a very soulful Penny Lane approach. And I really felt that she was the kind of person who would gather people around her to get her own sense of community. And like she'd have those band-aids. She had kind of a spirituality about loving music too. I thought was like essential. So Sarah Polly was supposed to be Penny Lane. And again, we worked about four months. And she, too, got cold feet. Did you see it coming? No, I didn't see it coming at all. I've never heard her fully explain it, but I guess she went to Sundance and had some long, soul-searching conversations with her friends who were more part of, like, indie cinema. And they had told her... You know, if you do a big Hollywood movie, it's going to make it harder for you to do the kind of thing that you really want to do, which is like smaller Canadian indie movies, maybe direct. I don't know. She feared the machine of Hollywood. And I was like, I'm not the machine of Hollywood. I promise. This is like a personal story. We're sneaking this through the system. I promise you. Lisa Stewart, who was one of our producers, was friends with Sarah. She flew out to Sarah to try and change her mind. And she'd made up her mind. She couldn't be Penny Lane. Losing Sarah Polly, it was where I, I got really unnerved. He called me and he's like, well, everybody's out. 
<laughs> Brad Pitt is no longer doing the movie and Sarah Polly is no longer doing the film. And I just want you to know I'm still going to make this movie. And I remember I said to Cameron, I'm like, Cameron, I don't care if I'm craft sir. I'm not going anywhere. I am making this movie. You tell me when. And I turned down two pretty big movies at the time. I even remember one casting director got upset with me. She was like through my agent. Like she can't keep just like coming in here on auditioning and then like turning things down. Like it doesn't look good. You know, if she doesn't want to do it, she shouldn't come audition for it. But for me, it wasn't about that. It was about Cameron. It was like, well, I want to make sure I'm free to go make this movie. Look, when you're an actor, you get into it because you want to play characters you know, you've seen characters in the past that inspire you to become an actor. You love to take on completely different roles outside of who you are as a person. And then every once in a while, you read something and you're like, please, I know that character, right? I know I can kill this. It's an electric read because you can really see yourself in it. And when I read... Almost Famous the first time, I mean, if I'm being totally honest, I mean, that was to me the character that stood out on the page. It was like, oh, Sarah Polly, she's so lucky. This is the best part, you know. And then I said to Cameron, can I audition for Penny Lane? And it was like, mm, <laughs> I don't think so. I was not what Cameron had in mind, I don't think, in the beginning. I was Anita to him. I was the sister. And... I just begged. I was like, please, I want to audition. And I think Gail, the casting director, and my agents were persuasive enough to let him sort of open that up. And I went in and I auditioned. When we had to play musical chairs and move people around, then I said, we have to have Kate for Penny Lane. But of course, other girls auditioned as well. And, you know, everybody wanted that role. Honestly, if it wasn't for Gail, I don't know if I would have been Penny Lane. I think she had a lot of influence and I think Cameron was in a really hard place to kind of know at the time you know when you cast someone as one character and then you're gonna then recast them in the same movie in a different character I think it's hard for a director when they've sort of seen you as something. Natalie had already happened and I did a screen test with Kate as Penny Lane and it wasn't the mystical kind of Penny Lane that I'd been working on with Sarah Polly. Here was somebody that just walks in the room and you're like, I love her, <laughs> you know? She was that character. So Kate does this, this is cool. Kate does her reading for Penny Lane with Patrick. And she's so loving and caring of Patrick that it was a whole other side of Penny Lane that we needed more. It was that kind of wonderful funny, bright light, who Patrick, you could just see him falling in love instantly. The gift of Kate is she's kind of like her mother, ageless, timeless, lights the room up. Fuck it. That was the character description. She lights the room up by walking into it. Plus, she's got the heart of Penny Lane because she was not the one that like went for the bigger paycheck and the bigger role with Harvey Weinstein. She was loyal I believe she was being counseled to take that offer. But what she did was stayed with the band. And so Steven saw the screen test and said, let's go with Kate. And I'm like, let's go with Kate. I had gone and flown back to Los Angeles three times to audition for Cameron while I was filming another movie. And 
they came and they told me to my face. And I just melted because I wanted it so bad, you know. And I burst into tears. And I called my mom like a heaping mess. (laughs) You're not going to believe it. I got it, mom. I got it. Everybody was just out of their minds. I was at home. The phone rings. My mom is like, yep, he's here. She hands me the phone and it's Cameron. He goes, hey, brother, how you doing? I'm like, good. How are you? He's like, I'm good. I'm good. He's like, so uh, what are you doing the next few months? And I was like, uh, I just have like school and probably skateboarding. I don't know. And he's like, you want to come make a movie with us? And I was like, uh, yes. <laughs> like, I didn't know what to say. I was like, uh, yes. And he's like, all right, brother. All right. Well, we'll be in touch. We're going to bring you out here soon. You got the part. I was like, oh, wow. Okay, great. This explains so much. You've robbed him of an adolescence. (laughs) Adolescence is a marketing tool. Honey, I know you were expecting puberty, but you're just going to have to shine it on for a little while. Did you ever think about Zoe for Penny? No. But Zoe comes in real quickly. (laughs) We had also seen Zoe Deschanel, but didn't have a part for her. She was just kind of this great spirit that like showed up in a long kind of 40s coat with a gardenia behind her ear. And just like, we're like, she was amazing. Why don't we have a part for Zoe? Next movie. Zoe was really pretty brand new. She had done something. My associate at the time, Andrew Brown, had seen her in some kind of theater piece. And she has a way of speaking that she's unique. Zoe Deschanel was born in 1980 into a showbiz family. Her father, Caleb Deschanel, is a six-time Oscar-nominated cinematographer whose most famous works include The Black Stallion and The Natural, while Zoe's mother, Mary Jo, an actress, appeared in Twin Peaks. Determined from an early age to make it as an actress, Zoe got her big break at age 17 playing a model in the TV sitcom Veronica's Closet. Her first film role the following year, Mumford, prompted her to quit school, Northwestern University, and pursue acting full-time. Her role as Anita Miller in Almost Famous, based on Crow's sister Cindy, preceded her starring turn in the TV series The New Girl. It was a project that a lot of people wanted to be involved with, very exciting. It was called The Untitled Cameron Crowe Project. A lot of people were going into reading, but no one was allowed to read a script. So I think I went in and read with the casting director, but then I didn't really hear anything. Maybe I heard, oh, you know, that I did a good job or something like that. But I didn't think anything other than maybe a generally positive feedback, nothing like, oh, we're interested in casting you. So I completely forgot about it for a few months. And then I heard that they wanted to bring me back in. So seemed like a long casting process. Do you remember what you wore when you went in? Oh, yeah, I remember it. I wore a flower behind my ear, and I wore a coat. But I came in a couple times, so I know for sure that when I went in for Cameron, I think for a screen test, like, finally, I remember I wore a sweater, which I still have. It's a coral-colored sweater and a flower behind my ear. It was more like a work session. It was really fun. And, you know, it was so much fun that I think I would have been 
I mean, obviously I wanted to be cast in the movie, but it would have been an amazing experience just to have been afforded the opportunity to go in and read for him and work with him for a little bit. It was really fun. And it's kind of the actor's dream. <laughs> it's always, I think, the goal to work with people like that who are so fun and give you inspiring direction and great dialogue to read. It was a really fun, just exciting work session. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you had done one movie before, I'm assuming it's right, Mumford? Yes. So I was in college, actually. I was at Northwestern studying theater. And what was funny, too, was that I had a friend that was friendly with Cameron Crowe, and he said, no, all the parts have been cast. When I was being brought back in for Anita, he said, no, all the parts have been cast. I'm like, well, then why are they bringing me in. It's so weird. I guess the casting changes had just happened. So we moved everybody up and got a place for Zoe. She's an old soul. And you know, it really ended up making so much sense because Kate was so brilliant in the Penny role. She was so perfect for that part. And then I think the Anita role just I look like Francis McDormand. <laughs> I look like Patrick. Like it, we look like such a family that it really ended up being, you know, exactly the thing that was supposed to happen, you know, for Kate and then for me too, because that just ended up being a total career making part. I can't say any more with the writer here. No, 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 no. You can trust him. Say what you want. He won't write it. Look, I work as hard or harder than anybody on that stage. You know what I do? I connect. I get people off. I look for the one guy who isn't getting off, and I make him get off. Actually, that you can print. Born in Santa Ana, California, on April 25th, 1970, Jason Lee was a professional skateboarder during the 80s and 90s, appearing in numerous videos and ad campaigns. After working with director Kevin Smith on Mallrats and taking some other minor roles in the early 90s, he left the helter-skelter world of skateboarding for the hurly-burly of acting. In Almost Famous, Jason plays Jeff Beebe, the lead singer of the band Stillwater. Jason Lee has the humor of the lead singer, which a lot of people miss when they do like a rock star character is the character will be like, you know, obsessive, drug addict, but they're never funny. They never get to be fucking funny. And Jason Lee just is funny. His smile is funny. His eyes are funny. And when the band leaves him behind at a truck stop and he comes yelling after them to stop, I'm only the fucking lead singer, you believe it. His pain is so enjoyable to watch. But how do you it's draw fantastic. the line between that and parody almost? How do you know how far to go with that? Boy, it's like I've seen so many lead singers. It's kind of um, my sister-in-law was a lead singer. You know, it's like a very specific personality. And Jason Lee so beautifully gets across the like the plight of the lead singer, which is I'm the guy that works hardest. They're all looking at me. When you want a tour, I know it's fun for you, but I have to remember all the words and dance and do all that stuff. I have to write. I have to pose for the cover. I am the fucking star, you know? It's like you want to just get that across with the proper amount of humor. And Jason Lee was actually like one of the few that could do that part. I'm just lucky to have him. 
I don't know that I had a script. I could be wrong. Apparently, one of the things that happens as you age is you lose a little bit of your memory. And that's definitely starting to happen to me as I approach 50. But uh, I knew about the auditions, and I knew that I was going to come in and read. I don't know that I was very well prepared. <laughs> but it was Scott Martin. He worked with Cameron, and he's really good friends with Andy, Cameron's assistant. And it was actually Scott that pushed Cameron, I think. Maybe Scott and Andy who pushed Cameron to see me because they had seen Chasing Amy. I didn't really see the correlation between the two films, but apparently Scott saw something. I, I don't know. And then I was able to go in and read for Cameron. What was that experience like? He's, of course, as you know, if you know Cameron, he's very passionate and likes to talk and he, he's very enthusiastic. And I just kind of followed his direction and was just kind of going along with it. What was your relationship with music like prior to this? Part well, of music like was a big part of my life and a big part of skateboarding too. Music and skateboarding go pretty hand in hand. So I was exposed to a lot of music, certainly. And also as a kid in the 70s, I was exposed to a lot of top 40. So a lot of what you hear in Almost Famous, you know, I would have heard as a kid while sitting in the back seat of some sedan or another in the 70s. So the milieu was of interest to you and you felt comfortable in it? No, yeah, I was certainly was a fan of Cameron's as I think everybody is and I was incredibly honored to have been there. Maybe there was a part of me that wondered why I was there. I, I you know, I was a kind of smart ass Kevin Smith kid. You know, I was in Kevin Smith movies and that's really all the experience I had. But I guess Cameron had enough interest to see me. And I remember there was a small lamp of some kind or something on his desk that I used as a microphone because I think he had me sort of uh, mimic being a, a singer. So I used this lamp on his desk as, as a microphone that I'm holding and essentially pretending to sing. And then, of course, we went through some dialogue, but it was very loose, almost like rehearsal. You made friends with them. Well, it was fun. Because they make you feel cool. And hey, I met you. You are not cool. I don't know why um, we took so long to come around to knowing that Philip Seymour Hoffman was the right guy. I think I almost felt like it was too easy, you know, that there might be some kind of curveball Lester that we could find. And um, we read so many people, and there were so many really great Lesters that happened. But nobody was really that magical version of the guy that I remembered, the guy that really changed my life. Philip Seymour Hoffman would not read. But what he did was on his way to meet Cameron Crowe, and I was in the room, he had seen a big billboard an American Express ad with Martin Scorsese. So Philip came in the room and they talked a little bit about New York and this and that and whatever else Philip was up to. And then Philip went into this big rant about this billboard and Martin Scorsese and how he was, you know, just like, wow, I can't believe he was doing this ad for American Express. I mean, it wasn't anything negative. It was just something that he was talking about in a very impassioned way. But he went on this rant, and then he left the room, and Cameron said, well, you know, I'm not, I don't know, he didn't read. I, 
I have to have him read audition. And I said, well, he's not going to read, but he just did. He just did. You saw what he did. That was the character. That's how smart he was, this actor was. He came in and he created this sort of, if you want to call it an improv, that was channeling that character and created a kind of a faux audition without really auditioning. And that was, to me, amazing. And Cameron said, oh my God, you're right. He just auditioned. Do you know how to get a record, not, not pressed, but played? You gotta take what you can, when you can, while you can, and you gotta do it now. That's what the big boys do. Because if you think Mick Jagger will still be out there trying to be a rock star at age 50, you're sadly, sadly mistaken. I didn't invent the rainy day, man. I just own the best umbrella. Cameron loved Jimmy Fallon, and he made that happen. He'd seen him on Saturday Night Live? Yeah. That was someone that we talked about early on, and he thought about him, you know, from the start for that role. And that whole little bit that he does where he said, do you think Mick Jagger is going to be, you know, shaking right. his booty? And, you know, because Jimmy's such a great mimic. He, it was priceless. Gail Levin, I love Gail Levin. Oh, my gosh. I'm getting goosebumps hearing the name Gail Levin. She is an assassin, dude. She's laser pointed. Like, she can find, she did this movie. This is her. I think this is one of the best cast films. You got to SNL in 98, and you had never done a movie before. No, I barely did TV. I mean, I could. <laughs> I, I was laughing through sketches on Saturday Night Live going, I don't belong here either. You know, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And then I got this audition. I go, how did you get the audition? I think there was like, you know, they were just auditioning for this new Cameron Crowe movie. They didn't want to say what it was about. And, um, you know, I'm a giant Cameron Crowe fan. Jerry Maguire, Say Anything, Fast Times. I mean, I'm a fan. I know him. I know... The idea behind his, you know, Rolling Stone and that he was a great, you know, writer and journalist and that he was young. when he, So I kind of knew all stories about him. Me and my sister used to watch Say Anything our whole life. I mean, we broke the videotape. I was almost in tears when I found out that I was actually going to be in this, <laughs> this movie, that it was real. I didn't believe it was real. But we had such a fun audition, I remember. When I did the audition, he had a video camera. He goes, okay, Jimmy, let's go. Let's get in. All right, we're going to do it. You know, you're Dennis Hope. You're a manager. Like, that's, he's so into directing. He is the best director I've ever worked with. He's just top to bottom, gets right into it and makes you feel like a million bucks. Even if I didn't get that movie, that audition changed my auditions forever because I felt like I did great. Even if I didn't do well, I left there going like, oh my gosh, I think I'm a great actor. <laughs> I, I might win an Oscar. Uh, when I found out that I got this role, I called my sister and she was like, Oh my God, Jim. And we were both like in tears. And like we were freaking out. I was jumping up and down, dancing with my mom. I go, this is the best thing that's ever, ever happened to me. Did you know that in a previous version of the script, this character was based on a Beatles PR person and he wanted David Bowie to play it? I stole this role from Bowie? Well, he had changed the role this, a little this, bit. This has happened before. We're up for the same thing. There you go. Yeah. And you always win. Well, when I did the audition, I was like, can we do this scene on the moon? Let's do this scene in space. And that's probably why I got the role, because I, I stole his voice. <laughs> Sorry, Bowie. Cameron and Gail Levin put together a stellar supporting cast that included Noah Taylor from Shine in the role of band manager Dick Roswell, Oscar winner Anna Paquin as Plexia Aphrodisia, Feruza Balk as Sapphire, 
Rain Wilson as a Rolling Stone editor, Modern Family's Eric Stone Street as the hotel clerk, and Aaron Foley as a fact checker. I have to hail Gail Levin. She lives and dies off of every little character. Like Eric Stone Street as the hotel clerk is the result of many sleepless nights. She found every little jewel of a casting idea that she just brought her big game. We were trying to find unique character people for each of these roles who brought a lot of their own personality to the role, stamped it into the role, and obviously made the role a lot richer because of who they are. Great casting. I mean, that's the other thing that I marveled at in rewatching it was how wonderfully cast it was. All the young women that were the Band-Aids, they were just an extraordinary ensemble. It's hard to get it right. I mean, sometimes you have to really kind of show people that they've got it in them. And from a director's point of view, while you're casting, sometimes these people are so, like Brad and Sarah and Natalie, so accomplished, and the idea that they want to do your movie, that in a way, it's a Faustian bargain, right? Yeah, deep baby. Down inside. Really well said. It's true. I mean, it's nice to have Brad Pitt in your movie, but not this one. The part wouldn't have worked as well with a known commodity. You know, like, I'm going to love this guy, Billy Creer. I haven't seen him in enough stuff. And the same, I think, is true to a lesser degree for Elaine, the mother character. There's something about being able to discover somebody that you kind of knew and love them as a group. I'm going to love Frances McDormand. I haven't seen her in a lot of stuff that I would consider a me movie to a teen audience or a young audience. But I think, Jim, this was one situation where... Right down the line, fate helped out with the right choices. If any one of those people that got cold feet had not gotten cold feet, it's a different movie. So what happened is the right people fell into the parts. hardly ever happens. It was uh, the cast we were meant to have. We knew what the feeling was supposed to be for Almost Famous. It was like, it's supposed to feel like a great song can make you feel. It's a feeling. Next, on Origins Almost Famous Turns 20, Episode 2, we'll start with Cameron Crowe's life as a teenage journalist and the long, winding road, 10 years, it took to write the screenplay for Almost Famous. Then in Episode 3, you'll get to go behind the curtain of Rock School, the intense six-week crash course in rock and roll that hearts Nancy Wilson and Peter Frampton taught members of the movie's cast. In Episode 4, it's all about tales from the set. Cameron and the cast look back on the long shoot for Almost Famous, highs and lows, including moments never before shared. And in episode five, we will discover how Almost Famous affected each of the cast members, the legacy of the film itself, and all things Cameron grow. For Origins, this is Jim Miller. Onward. This has been a production of Cadence 13, executive produced by me, Jim Miller, and my valued colleague, Chris Corcoran, who kicks ass running all content for Cadence. I do the writing and reporting for Origins, but the actual podcast is produced, edited, and mastered by my brother-in-arms, Chris Basil, a legend. Our producer and engineer is Terrence Malangone, who always makes the studio feel like home. And I also want to send a shout out to our marketing slash PR team, Josephina Francis, Hilary Schuff, and Kurt Courtney, along with Lizzie Denahan and the rest of the sales team. Corny as it may sound, I'm damn lucky to have all these people 
on team margins. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 